Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfomensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to this podcast, I welcome you and I hope that today's episode is one that will allow you to come back for more content. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get to the main event and introduce our newest guest, please, if you're on YouTube, make sure that you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications on new episodes of that day talk of educators live podcast and if you're and if you're listening from apple podcast uh spotify and all the other audio platforms make sure you subscribe there as well also for those who would like to contribute monetarily to the growth of this platform we do accept donations through cash app and venmo if you're on cash app the handle will be dollar sign id talk for ed and if you are on venmo the handle will be at kwame sm that's at symbol k w a m e s m and then to catch new or past episodes of the podcast you could check out all those episodes on our main website at identitytalkforeducators.com or simply go to our YouTube channel, which is under my name, Kwame Mensa. Thank you kindly. All right, y'all. So uh, today's episode is, I, I know I always say every episode is special because I do believe that all the guests we bring on here are special and they all bring great stories to the table. But this guest in particular is somebody who's going to talk to us about what education is like from the social work aspect, but she's also somebody who's doing the work when it comes to diversity and inclusion within her school district. And she's all about changing the narrative as it pertains to the approach we take in doing anti-racist work, because we all know that anti-racism is just this word that's been thrown around over the past few years. And it's to the point where the term has kind of lost its effectiveness because you have a subgroup of folks who are just going about it in a very performative manner. But this guest is someone who does not do that. She's as real as they come. And she's going to talk to us about her book that she co-wrote and just the work she's doing within her district. So uh, without further ado... I want to bring on our newest guest to the podcast, Miss Kathy Lopes, to talk with us about her journey 
and what she's doing currently in this fight for equity and justice. So let's bring Kathy on. Hello. Hey, Kathy. Hey, hey. How, How we you? doing? I'm good. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. Yes, it's great to have you here. Wow, this is so much to talk about. I've heard so many things about you from different people. And I said, you know, one day we got to bring Kathy on to just share a story because you have a very interesting story that I feel like everybody needs to hear. You know, I've had a chance to listen to other interviews you've done with different people. So I have a little bit of an idea of, of who you are, but I want to give you the opportunity to share with our audience who you are and what ultimately brought you into this field of education? Yes. Um, okay. So where does the story begin? Um, I think so because this is uh, really, it's called identity talk. And um, I think my identity is such, such an important piece about um, how I do this work and how I show up in this work. And it really started with my experience in education. So I am a child of immigrants. My, my parents both migrated here from the Cape Verde Islands and um, settled and raised us in a southeastern town in Massachusetts. So here I am, first generation American in a predominantly white community and going to school in a predominantly white education system. And I actually, that never changed from kindergarten all through grad school. I was in predominantly white institutions. And the, the different ways that my identity showed up in these spaces um, and the ways that I wasn't affirmed in my identity as a Cape Verdean or as a black girl. Um, and, and so I, I, recon I recognized that once I got to a place in college where I was, at a, I was uh, taking some sociology courses and really starting to dig deep into this and making these connections with my experience with education, with my racial identity, my ethnicity, my gender. And um, I just found like that was the place for me. I, I did, a, there was a lot of self-discovery that followed the years after, but a lot of it just always, there was always a connection to education, right? Um, how I felt in classrooms, how I felt in at universities, how I felt um, went with assignments and relationships with teachers and, and, and pieces like that. And I just knew that that was the place that I had done so much self-discovery and was able to really unpack a lot of how the educational system tells us or really pushes these, these narratives about what norms and standards should be. So I saw a place for me to, to be really impactful um, because of my own experiences and to be able to undo some of the, some of the harm um, with other students that I know was done on me, uh, have insight, know how to build relationships with certain communities because that was my experience. So education has always been the vehicle for me in, in showing up and doing this work and always bringing a diversity, equity, inclusion lens and also bringing my social work lens. But I always felt like education was where I could have the most impact. It had the most connection to my story. And I'm, I'm still here 20 something years later and I don't, I don't plan on leaving. And you mentioned the fact that you had your share of struggles, mm -hmm. you know, being in a predominantly white setting, being yes. Cape Verdean. Mm -hmm. So, I'm interested in knowing from you, how did those struggles impact the way you navigated the school spaces you're in during your K to 12? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it. And like I said, I wasn't able to really make this connection till I was older. But while I was in it, and what I was able to reflect on was there's a lot of feeling that I didn't belong. There was such a desire to assimilate because of all of these messages about what you know what success looks like what a student should look like what 
cool looks like, what, um, you know, support looks like, what relationships look like. And because I was bringing in my own culture from my own home, you know, my parents, we spoke Cape Verdean Creole in the home. Um, you know, I was very connected to my Cape Verdean roots through like my, my own family's traditions and, and um, you know, the language, the music, the food, uh, we always had family around. So when I showed up in these predominantly white spaces that I was foreign to them. And rather that it was a space that invited me to bring my full authentic self. It actually caused me to want to close off that part because it just made me feel different. It made me feel like an outsider and I just wanted to be like everyone else. So now recognizing that was why I had such a hard time at certain stages of my education, because I might've been rebelling about how I felt, or I was losing myself because I was trying to be something else that visibly I couldn't, right? Because people are still treating me, um, you know, in response to who they saw. So, um, all that internal conflict that I was able to, to really reflect on, I thought, well, because I understand that and I, I understand the nuances of what these experiences might be for black and brown students who are in these predominantly white schools, then I have some insight to, to make some change and whether or not that's really pulling in educators to, to think about these things that they might not know and using my voice to share and build empathy and create narratives and perspectives about student experiences, um, to really highlight the harmful practices and policies and systems that education reproduces and pushes on, on students who are, are, are marginalized in the system. So I felt that, um, you know, I, I had so much insight, my personal insight, um, and just kind of understanding also through primary, secondary, graduate level, um, the different ways that policies and, and procedures play a role. So I bring all of that into the work that I do. Yeah, I also went through a period where I didn't reject my Ghanaian identity. So both my mm -hmm. parents are from Ghana. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your neighbor. And, um, <laughs> yep. and I think there was a time where I started feeling internalized trauma because of all the ridicule and the teasing I was yeah. receiving as a kid. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it wasn't until I went to Ghana and lived there for three years with my father and my little sister that mm -hmm. I started to see people who looked like me right. and I was able to blend in. They had similar cultural names that I did. So it wasn't the only one with the, you know, with yeah. this exclusive unique name that was non-English. So right. that was a turning point for my life because mm -hmm. I, I realized that, hey, like my culture is pretty dope. And I started mm -hmm. to take pride in that. So when I came back to the States to continue my schooling, I was a totally different person. So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you ever had the opportunity as a child to go to Cape Verde when you were younger. Yeah, so I, I've been to Cape Verde, um, but I didn't actually get there until I was in my early 20s. So I had actually, I believe I had graduated from college at that point. So I wasn't able to go there as a child. And I, listening to your experience, I think it would have done me a lot of good um, and helped instill some pride because I think that that's part of what what was missing from my experience. There weren't opportunities for me to demonstrate or to feel prideful about my culture. The fact that I was bilingual, the fact that there was this music that my culture produced, there was these amazing foods, our values, the way we, we celebrate and honor and even mourn, right? And these were all things we did 
here in private. And then I go back out and I was like, oh, you do what? Oh, that's what you eat or that's you wail at funerals and services. So there, there wasn't an opportunity for me to share it in a way that was really prideful and engaged people and just being like, oh, that's really interesting. And that's, that's dope. I didn't have that sense of pride um, until later. I, I will say I went, once I went to college and I went to UMass Amherst and I, there was a, a broader Cape Verdean population. And I start to see people who I, I recognize the language and who look like me and who had hair like me. And, um, and I definitely gravitated towards those communities, not only Cape Verdeans, but also just like those who are immigrants or children of immigrants because of who had these similar stories of feeling that you didn't belong in this country, even for those of us who were born here, right? Because these messages say, you don't act like this, you don't look like this, this is, if you don't move like this, then you're non-American or, you know, you're, there's something wrong with you or you're violent or you're stupid or you're ugly. I mean, all of these things that we can internalize because we're not seeing ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. And would you say that college was the first time where you really found your community? Um, I would say, Yes, I, I think so. I, I, I definitely think that was the first time I really started to show up as a black woman. Um, and just even in like my social scene or where we went to dance or in relationships. Um, and I really I, I enjoyed being to being able to express these parts of my identity that not only were suppressed, but I actually didn't know a lot about in terms of just being black. Right. Because, uh, you know, I did these things, but to be around other black folks and it's just like, OK, this is this is I, I feel comfort in, in this community about our how we talk and how we think and how we move. So I think absolutely college was the beginning of that. And then I, I continued on to graduate school and um and, and a social work program and there was a lot of self-discovery that came through that i became part of the uh, association of black social workers on campus and that was a, an incredible community for me for black students in grad school that you did not see in your classrooms right <laughs> we have those meetings be like where are you because i don't see you <laughs> when i'm walking right. up across this so um and i just did and you know studying racism and oppression courses and courses on just um disproportionality and and that really was i i felt myself just coming into my own and really embracing myself and discovering parts of myself that were there that i didn't feel safe enough to discover so you mentioned your entry into social work and i Mm want to touch on that for a little bit because I can think back to early on in my career mm-hmm. when I was still a teaching assistant. Just about every school I worked in, we had TSS workers. Okay. So uh, TSS stands for, I think, therapeutic staff support. Okay. So I'm not sure if that falls under the social work umbrella. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, yeah. I think, yes, mm-hmm. the counseling support, the therapeutic support. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. But I felt like the TSS workers who I encountered, they were being underutilized by the different schools I was in. Mm -hmm. And it was always something that I recognized. And I just wondered if you had a situation or many situations during your time as a school-based social worker where Mm -hmm. you recognized some unjust practices taking place or some problematic actions that were being done by teachers or other staff members, and it caused you to have issues with your interventions with students who you're trying to help. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely, particularly as a young school social worker, but some of that stuff still even plays out today, right? Um, and I think that we speak a little bit more openly and call it out more. But back then, um, you just see how, uh, particularly students and black and brown boys, how there's less tolerance and less patience for them by teachers. So like they're asking, just take them out of the classroom. They're disrupting my classroom or let's suspend them. So you see when policies are around just our tolerance around what we assume is misbehavior or we code as misbehavior or violent or aggressive or disrespectful and how that always aligns with the behaviors we see from black and black or a higher percentage, it aligns with behavior we see from black and brown students, while white students might be doing the same thing, but we, we, we're able to get, say, oh, are their children, or this is just them developmentally, and we don't give that level of grace for black and brown students to the same extent. So as a school social worker, you often are dealing with the kids that folks felt like they didn't know what to do with them. So um, just get them out of here. They're not learning. They're a disruption, and not um, really considering what about the environment am I like what that's creating this person to reject my environment, right? What is saying you don't belong here? So therefore you are going to reject the space or find ways to be removed from the space or just try to assert some level of self-control because you feel so powerless and unseen in a space. So those are the things that a social worker, a therapeutic support with opportunities. Yes, we want to support the children, but what we want to actually do is take a step back and look at the systems and the structures and the policies that are reinforcing this really superficial thinking about students who look different. So um, it really pushed me to be like, no, I need to do more. I need to be able to have these conversations at, at, at the decision-making table to help people understand this policy or this procedure or this standard actually does a disservice and causes the very behavior, the problematic behavior that you're trying to exclude from your class, which therefore perpetuates, you know, the story and you know all of that, right? And a lot of that still happens today. Our discipline rates are still incredibly disproportionate um, in numbers where we see um, Latinx and Black students, particularly Black boys and Black girls get disciplined at higher rates. Um, we see in terms of AP courses and honors classes that certain students make up those classes and certain students don't. And I think all also another piece for me when I connect my story and education is I was I was I was a really smart kid and for a lot of my early elementary you know I was really performing high performing and then when I got to middle school and high school and my identity started to come into question and I became really unsettled uh, with myself I started to reject education and I started to rebel in certain ways or not produce in ways that I did and there were a lot of assumptions about my intellectual capacity. Um, because I was kind of presenting as this person who was just uninterested in education. So I know that there were a lot of educators who made assumptions like she's not smart, she can't do this, she has attitude, who knows what her home life is, not recognizing that education was an incredible focal point for my home life. And it was a huge value that my parents instilled in all of us. But all these misperceptions could happen because I'm now rebelling not because I don't like learning and not because I'm not capable, but because I am unsettled in this environment and I'm trying to adapt in a way that feels safe to me or a way that gives me some sense of power. So I think being in a position where I can be uh, helping create or undo those policies that really push students to perpetuate these really harmful narratives of students who looked like me or look like me now, um, is is really, really important to the work that I do. And do you feel like your position as a school-based social worker 
restricted you from really getting engaged in that disruption work that you now do as a DI director? I think um, I've had experiences where absolutely I wasn't able to do the work. I was really just managing what was coming at me, right? I was managing a product of what the system was producing. But I've also felt like I've been really, really successful. And a lot of that often aligns with what is leadership in the space that you're in? And is leadership really acting out on these values, right? What is who's Who's managing these systems? And in places where I've had really strong supervisors or school leaders or principals or directors who, one, really valued this idea of equity and safety for all students, and who said, I know you're the expert in this content, go do it, and I will provide the support, whatever resources, whatever communication, whatever backing you need. So even if I was a direct worker in the school, I still felt like I was productive in the fact that I got to like really push some teachers, push back on some teachers, or engage family members in a conversation. But if I was in a place where, and I think you use the word performative, right, where a a leader brought me on but had no real desire (laughs) to do the work, Work, then I I got really frustrated. I felt like I'm I'm a part of the problem now. So I've had both of those experiences in my career. I think now I'm at a place in my career where I can I can assess it earlier, and I don't go there go to those places, or I make it very clear for me to do work here. This is what's really important. Um, but earlier on in my career, there are definitely those spaces where I felt like I'm just checking a box here, and I actually am doing a disservice to these students by not disrupting the systems that are creating this. And this is a perfect segue into the book, Change the Narrative, Mm -hmm. which is what I love uh, because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we really have to reframe the way that anti-racist work is done. And so often when we talk about this, we usually talk about it at the classroom level but seldom do we talk about it at the administrative level or the mm-hmm. school leadership level. Mm-hmm. And I know that you and your co-author, Mr. Henry Turner, shout out to him. Yes. yes uh, y- y'all both work at the same district yes. in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. And there was an interesting story about how you became involved with the writing of this book. So if you don't mind just sharing how you came on to this project. Yes. So Henry, uh, the co-author of this book, was really the brainchild behind the book. So Henry and I both work in the same district. He has a principal who education has been his whole path um, into principalship and myself as a director of DEI, but came through a social work path. And in just supporting his school or doing professional developments, we just we were naturally drawn to each other. And what we realized, there were a couple things, one of which we're both we're both folks who identify as black, but grew up in predominantly white communities. So I think we both had this shared experience of being othered um, or wanting to assimilate and what education meant to us, even though there was there were slightly different stories, but we there was so much connection in, in different developmental phases of our stories. Um, and I think we both had such a strong commitment to this work because of that. What we later found out is we both went to college at the same place um, and three of our four years, we were actually there. Uh, we don't remember each other, uh, but we still now can kind of recall a lot of the, oh yeah, you were there for that. Or I remember 
when that was happening. So that's just like another connection that we share the same alma mater within the same time. Um, but he was really committed to writing this book um, from a from a principal lens and, and an educator who's been a classroom teacher around kind of some of these policies, whether it's grading policies or how do we evaluate teacher performance or how do we set the stage in a school community. And he started writing it and, and he was like, you know, would are you willing to just be a support? Give me feedback as I write it. Absolutely. We developed such a strong friendship at that point. And then a little bit into it, he's like, why don't you just write it with me? And I was like, wait, what? This is this is your thing. And um, and he convinced me. And what we really love about the book is that we were able to bring we definitely have a, a similar voice and what we believe is important. Right. Our values in this work are completely aligned. And we always knew what the message was that we wanted to get across. But because of his educator path and because of my clinical training path, we felt like it has a more comprehensive um, just kind of overview of this work. So where he's talking a lot about these policies and procedures, school-based policy and procedures, I'm really thinking about kind of the identity piece work, the learning, how do we bring community in? How do we build empathy? How do we enhance our self-reflection and uh, our own knowledge about historical racism? How do we engage with people and things that could, that are new to a lot of folks and how do we listen? How do we add value? So I think the book really captures a lot of what is needed in order for this work to be done. And we wanted to talk about it from a leadership perspective, because I, I like I said, this, this, can't be done unless the leadership, right? And those who are decision makers and those who are stakeholders are really supporting this work and really convicted in this work. So we wanted to bring in leaders to say, if you want your school to move in this direction, there's a lot of self-reflection and internal work you have to do to one, recognize what, what gets in the way, what's gonna be difficult, how do you manage um, learning some new things or hearing some things or seeing things differently? And then how do you move a community? How do you move your faculty and staff? Uh, how do you empower students? How do you bring along families? How do you um, work with resistors that are uh, always inevitably gonna show up in the community in, in multiple ways? So uh, I think the exciting thing about this book is we capture so much of it um, with, with, again, one joined voice, but with so many different experiences. So I think there's a lot that you can take from it. Um, so we're really excited. And I think what's great about this book is the fact that it's not only targeting school leaders and administrators, but it's also reiterating the fact that this work has to be done as a collective. Yes. And uh, when I think about the fact that we have so many principals, well-meaning mm -hmm. principals and school leaders mm -hmm. who want to move their schools in a positive direction, mm -hmm. they tend to do it with paternalistic tendencies. Absolutely. See, so we think about... Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when right? you think about paternalism, it's like, I know what's best for the school. Oh, yes. And a lot of times paternalism comes in the form of white saviorism or yes. just saviorism in general. It's, yes, yes, right. Yeah. And, and this relief of guilt, right? So I think we we all saw kind of a cultural shift in, you know, with the, the murders of George Floyd and Mart Arbery, and we saw white allies re reckoning with, oh my God, it really is, as as others have been saying, right? Which for, for many Black folks are like, mm, okay, right, side eye. Uh, we've been saying it all along. We've, we've been overlooked. 
Yes. But um, but there was this, what do I do? What do I do? I, I'm so uncomfortable with it. I, I, I feel so guilty about it. What do I do? So one, it's this desire for to be told how to fix it, right? Like if we knew how to fix it, it would have been fixed. What are you talking about? Right. <laughs> so and so there's no blueprint for this, but it is undoing the way you move. And what happens uh, often in this work, and, and as a DEI director, you have these folks that are really excited to have you there. And they're like, do this because we need to take care of our poor families and those poor babies over there need this. And my question is, how do you know? What is your communication with this community? What is your relationship with this community? Have you actually asked and valued the voice of this community? Are you speaking from like this paternalistic way? I know what's best for them. And that is a big piece of what I've learned to kind of manage in this role. All these phone calls, like we got to, we got to make sure we handle the bus situation because those poor kids are, and when you talk to these families, they're like the bus situation. I, nah, that ain't even number six on my list, right? <laughs> Deal with this teacher who keeps, you know, talking to my child this way, deal with this program that, you know, this, whatever, like all of these things that happen. Um, and those are the hard things for well-meaning people to hear. Actually, you discriminate, right? You have unconscious bias. What I do. So I think for me, it's really pulling people to say, if you want to do the work, you're going to have to unravel and undo some things that, that you have been producing and doing for most of your life. And when you don't have someone who's pushing that or you're, you don't have spaces to really bring people in in a way that they feel like they can learn and participate, um, you're not making a learning community, then you have a lot of people who want to reject it. I don't have time for this. This doesn't feel good. I don't see it as productive. What does this have to do with anything? I'm not this person, right? And those are all the things, all the resistance that shows up in this work. So um, you have to create a community that is collective. It's the learning, it's the leadership, it's the communication, it's the being courageous to call out that that teacher that's been here for 20 years, but everyone kind of knows they, they're racist, right? Or that book they keep teaching that they're so stuck on teaching because it means something to them. And despite hearing, well, it's really harmful to these students. Well, that's that's what I use. Well, then you're not about mm -hmm. this because you're centering yourself, your comfort, your needs, right? Because if I'm telling you it harms them, what about that makes you disconnect and not care that you're being harmful? What about that? Let's unpack why that doesn't matter to you as much as your own comfort and safety. So that's the real work. And that's the, that's the way I do this work. And it, it ain't for everybody. But I think when it's done well, um, the, the shift, the movement is incredibly powerful. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because so often when we talk about anti-racist work, we have to bring up intersectionality because mm -hmm. intersectionality is so key in understanding our roles within this work. Mm -hmm. So I want to find out from you, when you hear those three Ps, privilege, positionality, and power, mm -hmm. how do you believe those three Ps influence the work of school leaders and administrators in the different school districts out there? Yeah, I think first and foremost, you, you have to get folks to recognize that they have them, right? And you have people 
um, who think like, what privilege I, I struggled or I put myself through college. And yes, that that can be true. And depending on where you are in society, you still walk with a level of privilege. I mean, I have to acknowledge that I hold a level of privilege with, and positionality and power in my roles. And for me to come in here and act like everybody else and not recognize that really does a disservice sometimes if I'm actually trying to support a community that that um, I'm not as connected to because of my positionality and power, right? I can connect to folks on certain levels and identity levels, but I have to recognize my positionality and power and privilege. And I use that. I use my positionality, power and privilege to get this work done. That's what we want from our leaders. We want you to recognize you have power. We want you to use your positionality to make those hard decisions because if you're going to be asking your educators to engage in this work, you have to create space to support them and back them when they're taking risks or when they have a community backlash, right? When you hire DEI directors and then you leave them out to dry when something happens and the community starts you know, going, coming after them. No, your position in power, if you brought them on, is to say, no, this is our district's vision. This is our work. This is someone who's been hired to help facilitate that work. But I'm not going to leave that person and most likely a person of color and most likely a woman to, to just have to handle that and be thought of as I'm the only person who really is pushing this racism stuff. Right. Because then I become an angry black person who's just never satisfied. So I think that particularly for leaders, part of that self-reflection is around those pieces of your identity about like you actually have power, you actually have voice to make decisions to push this work along or to create spaces for this work to happen. And without that, it really cannot be done in a transformational systemic way. Um, so it's, it's, it's incredibly important that those pieces exist and that there's a recognition of who has, who holds those pieces, who holds those pieces of identity. And in this work that we do, mm -hmm. we have prescriptions mm -hmm. and subscriptions. So let me explain what I mean by that uh, for the audience. So usually when people come to who they proclaim to be experts when it comes to anti-racism, mm -hmm. it's always this sense of urgency of, Hey, can you just give me what I need to know so I could just do this work right now? Like, right. I need to know. They don't have that recognition that this is a marathon. This is forever work. Like, you're right. never going to get to the end of this. This is something that just keeps on going and going. Mm -hmm. And what tends to happen is we tell them this, but they're still like, just, just give me the book that I need to know. Can I get your slide deck if you did a presentation so I could just do what you said and just apply it to my class? Right. But how many of us are subscribing to this work? Like we prescribe to get people to subscribe. So I'm wondering in your work that you do as a DEI director, mm -hmm. how do you provide prescriptions in a way that protects not only your mental health, but also doesn't allow you to be that angry black woman? Yeah, I mean, I think being a social worker, right, I'm really mindful of that. I'm really mindful of kind of how much is too much. When do I need to take a step back? Or when is this institutional organization just not a good fit for me, right? But I also think that part of what I, I push, right, is a cultural shift. And um, so for me, and particularly with my social work background, is creating a space 
for folks to really understand that this is lifelong work, that this is uh, the, the self-reflection and internal piece has to happen. So how do we create stories to share narratives and to think about a racial identity development journey and think about relationships with students and really care about relationships with students? So I really try to pull in folks to, to see, right, to unravel not only the harm that exists, but the ways that you inflict harm unwittingly, right, unintentionally, uh, when you want to go touch that student's hair because you thought it was pretty, or when you said someone sounded so smart and you were so surprised, right? These aren't, that doesn't mean you're a bad person, but we have to kind of get you to recognize that one, you do it, and two, that it actually lands in a certain way. And if you care enough, then you're going to be committed to doing it differently. Um, what, I, what I will say, though, is that that it, it is really, really hard because you do get um, white fragility, you do get defensiveness, you do get attacked when you call folks out as an angry black person or sensitive, or you heard it wrong, or you couldn't take a compliment, or and all of that. And I think again, it really comes back to one, like your leadership and feeling like you have the support when harm's been done that someone can step in and say that we have to hold you accountable for that. And we have to try to repair the harm um, so that I feel like I continue the work. But then we also have to just um, create allies that are willing to hold people accountable for that, right? So you want to do this work when that white woman says something to me that you all heard, don't come into my office later and say, I'm so sorry that happened to you, right? Step in the moment and hold your per your community member accountable for the harm. And we want to do that in classrooms too. When we see students causing harm and using the N-word or, you know, all these racial slurs, we want teachers to interrupt in the moment. Um, so when we talk about performative is folks saying like, oh, I didn't know what to say, or I didn't know what to do, or I, I don't think it was that bad. That is not being anti-racist, right? That is actually allowing racism to persist and to thrive because you're centering your fear, your discomfort, whatever it is. Um, so creating a community where people feel like, um, and, and I don't want to say safe because we can never have people feel safe, but that they can, they, they find opportunities to really explore and learn and make mistakes and feel like it's okay that I don't know is really, really important. And that is, that is so fulfilling to me when I see that shift, when I see folks taking risks, when I see action actually aligned with what folks are saying um, that they're committed to, uh, that it aligns with their values. But you also need leadership, you need policy support. We have a statement of values and commitment that really talks about what does it mean to do this work? What does it mean in hiring and curriculum and holding students accountable when harm is inflicted, engaging families, um, you know, all of this cultural representation all over. And we hold folks to that. So when we see folks deviating from it, we say, mm -mm, if you want to work here, this this is who we are. This is who we are. And that is, you know, that's a protocol. That's a guidance. That is a procedure we've put in place to try to keep people on track. So you can um, have anyone facilitating workshops all day, but what are you doing to support that that work is sustainable, that work continues, even when folks hit a wall and start saying, this is too much. Another thing I just want to add too, when I do trainings and we talk about culturally responsive instruction, undoing these harmful narratives and these 
terrible curriculums that many of us grew up in learning about all of these things that left out folks who look like us and, and teachers get real. Oh my goodness. I never knew this, but am I going to get paid to, un to learn all this? Um, is there going to be, do I have time to learn all this? And that's a really hard thing for me to hear because if you're committed, right, this is an extra work. This means you have to go undo what has been your default because you now recognize it's inaccurate, it's harmful, it's not productive, right? And if you care about that, then you want to invest in changing, changing that narrative of how you teach or what information are you sharing. But when it comes with a, you need to give me this in order for me to, to be motivated, then that, that is actually, that can be really harmful for me because I'm like, one minute you just said you're about this and you feel terrible, but you're telling me you are only going to do it if you're compensated or if you get credit for it, that is really harmful. Um, and I need you to understand how that lands on me as a woman of color who's had these harmful experiences all inflicted on her all her life. And, um, and again, you have to make a decision about, can I work through this? Or is this just a place where it's too frequent and it's too much for me? So I know as a DEI director at your school district, which mm -hmm. has been for a few years now, mm -hmm. you know, you've put in a lot of different policies, procedures, and protocols mm -hmm. as a way to bring accountability onto mm -hmm. staff members and faculty. So yes. I'm just wondering from your perspective, mm -hmm. how do you see growth in the teachers within your district? Because whenever you're bringing in this paradigm shift that we're mm -hmm. calling anti-racism, there has to be some evidence of growth that lets you know that, hey, we're not where we want to be, but something is working here. And it's keeping me optimistic. So I would really love for you to share some of the growth that you've seen in your years mm -hmm. as a director at your school district doing this DEI work. I love this question because this is kind of, I'm, I'm entering my third year of DEI work. And one of the things that is a struggle for me, right, is this white supremacist desire for me to produce quantitative data of the impact of this work, right? And really helping folks understand that those tools that, were, that are used to measure success are steeped in white supremacy culture. They weren't built to assess the growth of doing anti-racist work. So I, it's going to be really hard for me to give you numbers that demonstrate success. But what we can do is, again, change the narrative, take a step back and start to look at our community, start to uh, look at student engagement, start to survey and audit, um, you know, students' feelings of safety, um, start to look at your hiring. Are you bringing on more representation, more diverse representation into your hiring, right, into your educator force? And not only are you bringing them, are they staying, right? Because that's, that's the piece that people... They, they bring them on, we hired them, we gave them a great signing bonus, but then they're gone, right? And think about like that trauma and that and that um, turning table for students too, when they see someone and someone keeps leaving. So, um, and we also just measure, um, you know, student um, attendance. Are we seeing more students show up? Are we seeing um, certain students in certain classes that we hadn't previously and taking different courses? Uh, we also have our non-discrimination um, protocol, which again, holds students accountable for racial slurs or any harm that is inflicted or any reports of harm that is inflicted on a protected class, right? So are we looking at what type of investigations and reporting and is that changing? Is 
is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it more about race? Is it more about gender? Is it more about anti-Semitism, which we saw rise in um, recently this past school year? Um, and how are we gauging that to see if our restorative work, if our work around healing and helping in the learning around the impact of harm, is that showing a difference in the, the reporting and the, the outcomes of investigations um, and really understanding that? So I think that there's so many ways to look at um, to, to, to really be able to pull, do, do people feel like they belong? Are they engaged? Uh, we have students from middle school and high school really engaging in social justice activity. We had middle schoolers and high schoolers say, we want to address this. And they did a no walk for hate and brought a walk through the community. And if we're seeing student efficacy and student agency, and we're seeing not only um, students of color out there speaking, we're seeing white students out there speaking and saying, we want this. That is um, that is a demonstration. That is evidence of success and movement in this work. And we can't minimize that because we're looking at MCAS scores or college acceptances or who's in the AP honors classes. Because again, those assessment tools in the system has been designed to benefit certain students. So um, that is a big piece of how do we demonstrate, like I get pushback all the time. Well, we need to see data. We need to see data. So my job is to really educate, educate folks on what, what is considered data and why do you hold more value in this particular data and not this data? Because if we have students and parents saying my student has never felt so good about learning, that is data. Um, so that is how I try to assess it um, and try to deliver it and try to capture it again through surveys or narratives or just, um, you know, like just paying attention to what has increased here and what has decreased um, in particular areas that we knew were problem areas. And I want to talk about accountability. I want to stay mm -hmm. on this for a second because I oh. feel like in your position, accountability can be very tricky. Mm -hmm. um, and here's what I mean by that. And I'm going to bring in restorative practices mm -hmm. in this conversation because I feel like the work that we do as anti-racist educators is restorative because mm -hmm. it's not about being punitive. It's about right. bringing people along on this education journey. That's why when mm -hmm. you hear Loretta Ross say, let's call people in, or mm -hmm. if you hear uh, Sonia Renee Taylor say, let's call on people to do the work. Yes. That's the accountability. But yes. that also means we're trying to build community. So mm -hmm. in your district where you have teachers who get evaluated for their instructional performance, mm -hmm. for their interactions with students, mm -hmm. how does all these things we're talking about factor into this evaluative process yes. for teachers? Because there has to be accountability somewhere. Cause we have to find a way to filter out the teachers who are committing these infractions. Yes. Yes. So I, um, I can speak to a, a, a few things we've done in our district. And again, like, I'm just really grateful to be in the district that I'm in and, and be supported to, to push this work because a lot of it is systemic change. So one of the things that we have is we have this protocol where any student or any parent can say, this has been my experience. And you can report on a teacher, you can report on a like a, a classmate. Parents can say, I had this experience and it is investigated. There's a system of investigation and, and having to determine whether or not it's substantiated or not, right? So we've made that accessible to everyone. everyone and, and if you want to do it in private, 
private because sometimes there's a lot of risk in a black colleague reporting on someone or a black student who a teacher holds the power of your grade, right? So there are ways to even do it anonymously or do it online. So we tried to create it, make it as accessible for, for people to share their stories in which we are required to do an investigative process. Now, through that investigative process, a couple of things might happen, right? We might find out it's bogus. A very limited amount of times is it actually bogus, right? It might, but Or we substantiate and we confirm that that actually happened exactly how it was told. Or even sometimes we find out it didn't happen exactly how it was told, but something still happened and we still have to address it. So through our protocol, we are very clear that this, this is about learning, building community, a restorative process, healing. We want students to be, uh, people to be able to return to their community. And we want everyone who not only inflicted the harm, but who observed the harm to be a part of the healing process So and, and developmentally appropriate. So even in young you know, fourth grade teachers are bringing in kids for a circle to talk about what happened at recess in a, in a, again, in an educational way and letting parents know this has happened all the way up to older students where, you know, social media and things happening and bringing folks in and, and hearing having someone say, this is what it felt like when you put that on social media about me. And most of the time, people didn't actually mean to hurt someone, right? They're just kind of caught up in their developmental <laughs> ages. And But when they hear that and when they learn that, they're like, I didn't even know, or I was just being stupid, or I just repeated something, but I'm hearing the harm. Um, I'm recognizing the harm. And because we've built community, I'm going to apologize and, and my the community around me is going to be a part of this process. So that's just one way that we are really trying to um, create some accountability when harm has happened. In addition, we, we've been doing a lot of training with our staff um, and our educators to really think about racial identity, to think about culturally responsive instruction, to think about white supremacy. And we also realize that we have to standardize a way to evaluate um, the impact of the work, but the shift in educators kind of ownership and responsibility. So right now we're introducing a tool that has you um, kind of do a pre and a post assessment on kind of like your curriculum, your understanding, your comfort, comfort in having conversations. Where are you at the end of the year? But we're also now in creating a tool for teachers to really look uh, with the lens and assess their practices in their classrooms if they're culturally responsive and um, bring that into your supervision and with your evaluator um, and having evaluator assess like, how are you greeting students? What does your classroom look like? What are the alternative ways for students to engage that is outside of just raise your hand or you know take a test? So we are actually, we've developed a tool, our teaching and learning department has developed a tool and we're trying to introduce it to uh, evaluators and supervisors to bring it into their supervision with teachers and say, here's an area that we're going to focus on this year. Um, so again, those are some of the, the systemized things um, that we're doing to support this work. Wow. Having teachers do their own equity audits on not only themselves, yes. but on their curriculum materials within the classroom. That's very cost effective, I might add. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yes, but it but it works when you have a community that says, okay, we, we want to do it. Like, all right, we're about it. And when you have, you know, 75, 80% of the community doing it, what happens is the 15 or the 20% of resistors start to become outsiders, right? We don't give them the power of that voice. So then they either decide, fine, I'm going to join, or this place isn't for me. And if that's the case, good riddance, right? Um, but the, the, that's the idea of the culture shift. 
shift that this is who we are. This is what we need to do to become who we say we want to be get on board or go somewhere else because we are expecting resistance. We're prepared for resistance and we're going to keep moving through the resistance. Mm. Truth, truth, truth. Now I have a couple more questions before we wrap things up. Um, First question is how do you continue to grow in this work of DEI? Mm -hmm. What are those Mm -hmm. areas that you feel are still blind spots in your education of it? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a learner. I'm a reader. I'm always going to hear speakers and listen to podcasts and pick up books. So that's just a part of who I am. But I think a lot of my self-reflection too, is because I am someone, I do hold all of these identities I've talked about, but I am someone who has been um, in positions of power at a very early age in my career. Um, I'm in a particular kind of social class. Um, So sometimes the access and privilege I've had to education or resources to do things, I have to stop myself and say, well, is that accessible to everyone, right? Like, I'm assuming everyone should do this. And I need to pause and realize, like, is that accessible to everyone? Or am I privileged or resourced in a way? And that's, that's a self check. Um, I, you know, also, a, a lot of internal stuff about um, like colorism that is in, you know, in certain communities and Cape Verdean and Latinx communities and a lot of African communities. And still, maybe sometimes that is coming up for me or what do I think is beautiful? Um, you know, I, I've advanced a lot, but sometimes these default thinking shows up and I'm like, why am I drawn to this? Something that looks like me or something that um, I'm more comfortable with. So there is constant self-reflection and I'm fortunate enough to also have surrounded myself with a community that they will call me out because we're all invested in this, right? So I have friends that might be like, girl, that sounds a little, mm." I'm like, you're right. You're right. Okay. Um, And so, and we can do that with each other because we have decided this is what we care about. So we're doing it for the sake of our own growth and, and, you know, the purpose, there's a purpose. Um, I think the other pieces I teach, um, I've been an adjunct professor for uh, going on 11 years. And I do it because it, it forces me to stay connected, to be, get, you know, the most updated information, to constantly think about the, ge- the different generations that are coming in to learn and how I need to adopt and understand What's the cultural context of how students are getting information nowadays, which is heavily social media or how to engage students in learning, which isn't always a hardcover book like it was, you know, uh, when I was I was in ed- earlier in education. So I do that to kind of keep a pulse uh, and to stay checked um, and, uh, and and kind of understand like what's what's new information and new materials to really support my learning. So I am and I'm just like a big nerd, like any documentary, any <laughs> Is book signing. Um, I'm I'm there. I'm there. So nice. And over the past few years, we've had a lot of books focused on anti-racism. And there are certain people who are at this point thinking, "Oh, damn! Not another anti-racist book again." Like, <laughs> yep. How many more books do we need out there that talks about anti-racism? So I want to rate this question before we get into the lightning round. Yeah, with change the narrative. Mm -hmm. How does that differentiate itself from other education books that focus on anti-bias and anti-racist practices? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, but it's one that I'm obviously uh, prepared <laughs> to answer because when we were putting this book together, we we had that conversation. And there are incredible books that are out there by Ibram X. Kendi and um, all the supporting books by Bettina Love and Goldie Muhammad and all of that that really supports like creating these cult um, anti-racist communities. I think what differentiates our book is um, it's it's one, it's targeting leaders and it's actually helping guide them through this is what you should consider to implement this in your school regardless of the makeup of your school it forces you to take inventory of the makeup of your school community or district um, to take inventory of your own self um, and your positionality and think about how do I engage my community in this and how do I continuous. So it's transformational um, and not transactional. Um, and I think both of us from being leaders in school communities, and again, coming from an educator lens and a social worker lens and infusing, infusing that is something that I don't believe exists out there. We absolutely resource all these amazing authors and folks who are, you know, pioneers in this work. So we want to give credit where credit's due. So there's, it's, there's lots of references and a lot of supporting and citations that came in from these amazing people. But we do think that our book, and we wanted to make it accessible too. So it's not heavy in kind of philosophy. Um, it is in like how to think about creating a teacher evaluation, how to think about setting up a training for at the athletic department, which is something I have done, right? The toxicity of racism and sexism and homophobia in our culture of sports. How do you talk to coaches and athletic directors around that? So there's examples of things. How do you talk to counselors about this? Because it's different than a classroom teacher. So, um, so there's like a lot of anecdotes. There's a lot of templates for folks to take on. We definitely don't tell you what to do and how to do it, but we, we give you a start and then ask you to really take inventory and assessment of your community and think about how to prioritize or what what is doable um how to bring on other leaders so it's it's um i think that makes it different there's some concrete guidance in there um and it, and it is infused with our personal stories so i do talk about experiences i had as a student or even as a dei director walking into some of these white schools and getting resistance from educators and the microaggressions and you know having warm demanders as educators that really push me through those hard times so there's a lot of personal stories infused but it is leaders talking to leaders about how you can create this work and sustain this work and how do you keep tapping into your own stuff and checking yourself along the along the way so um, I think it, it, it is dynamic in that way and differentiates from the other books uh, while not taking credit away from some of those amazing books too to supplement this work. Yeah, I think you've convinced a lot more folks to buy this book based on that explanation. <laughs> Great. Good. <laughs> and, and also because I really believe in it. Right. Of course, I want to sell books and, and, you know, I want to I want my book to do well, our book to do well. But I really believe in it. And that was really important to us, too. I'm like, I don't want to put something out there that I can't stand by. Um, so I, I really do believe in the authenticity of our writing and our perspective on how to tackle this. Mm, absolutely. So we're about to approach the hour and we want to do a lightning round. So we have just a few um, quick hitter questions to close mm -hmm. us out. Mm -hmm. uh, first question I have for you is, what are you doing these days for self-care? How are you taking care of yourself? 
Oh, what am I doing? Um, I am uh, an outside physical girl at heart. So this summer was, I think, like our first summer that didn't feel so constricted. So I was outside as much as I could in the sun, in the water, climbing trees, whatever it is, running. Um, I like to be active. I like to be out in fresh air. I like to hike. So that is that is my go-to when I can. I also live in Boston. So, you know, the winter is approaching and that makes it a little bit harder to be outside. Um, but uh, for me, it's it's movement and fresh air whenever possible. Um, I have a yoga practice. I have a meditation practice too um, that I tap into uh, when I when I need to replenish and recenter. All right, cool. Uh, when you enter any space, not even a classroom, but just any space, what's your walk-in song? Gosh. Um, so it's hard, but I, like the person that always comes to my mind when I think about like who I am or how I want to show up is Beyonce, right? Like Beyonce just exudes like black female badass, <laughs> right? So um, Who Run the World is a song that always kind of plays in my back, especially like I love supporting black and brown women too. I love black and brown women. Like we're just so dope. So that, and I think even just her new album, there's so many tracks in there that are about like self-love. Um, so I, I think like really anything Beyonce that is about just being dope and being black and loving yourself and being a woman and being powerful, um, I'm always drawn to. So yeah, so you've been bumping that Renaissance album hard. Still, huh? Every single song. Some of them maybe not so appropriate to walk into a classroom <laughs> playing, but <laughs> but for sure. Mm -hmm. Of course. <laughs> if you can invite three influential figures, dead or alive, to dinner, who would they be? Um, I think first and foremost, it has to be the woman who was the most transformational author um, for me, which is Asada Shakur. So reading her autobiography really was kind of like the, the a significant uh, changing point in my life. So love, love, love to just even offer her, you know, my gratitude for the impact that book has had on my life. Um, and I think the theme of just like strong black women and black authors or black women who are just showing up. Um, I'm a big fan of Brittany Cooper. Um, I'm a big fan of Michelle Obama, also Barack Obama, but you know, um, so these are folks like just to be in their presence, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court Justice and her story um, to the to the Supreme Court. Um, so just like strong women, women of color, um, they, they're the first that come to mind, but the list is long, the list is long. All right, second to last question. Who would you like to see as a guest on this podcast? You've gone through this experience, mm -hmm. so who do you think should be the next person or someone in the future we should bring mm -hmm. on? I mean, um, people I would love to hear, and you've already had some dope guests too, but like, like I said, Brittany Cooper, I love listening to her. There's so many amazing women doing this work that I still learn from Goldie Muhammad, Bettina Love, Dina Simmons, um, uh, just Bethay Iko, uh, just... Uh, and I, I should probably be shouting out some men too, because I know there's men that do dope work too, but I'm just so drawn to the, the female voice um, and, and learning from them because I think we have to overcome so much to be powerful and successful in this work, right? Um, that I just, I, I love getting inspired and learning from really smart um, women who are really invested in social justice. And that was an intentional move that I made when I first started this podcast was to make sure that I center as many 
women of color, particularly black women, because just for that reason you mentioned, we don't amplify y'all enough. So if I could do that through this platform, you know, that's just my small part in helping in that cause. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> this has just been a dope conversation. I wish we could go on forever, but we both have our lives to live. <laughs> we do. We got work to do, right? <laughs> and we got so, work to do for sure. Yes. But before you go, please let people know how they can follow your social media. Uh, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about inclusion consulting, um, your own mm -hmm. firm and the work that you do there, but I want to give you that chance to just shout that out and just let people know how they can uh, learn more about your services and, and connect with you there. Yes. So I have a Twitter handle, Kathy Lopes 21. That's Kathy with a K and Lopes with an S. Um, Kathy Lopes 21. I have uh, my LinkedIn page just under my name. A lot, you can connect with me there. But I also have, in addition to all these roles I've mentioned, my own consulting um, uh, organization, and it's called inclusionconsulting.com. And it's inclusion with the K. So it's a play on my name, KL. So inclusionconsulting.com, where you can um, email me, you can kind of see what services I offer. Um, if I'm not available, I really try to connect you with other incredible consultants out there. Um, my book, Change the Narrative, written by myself and Henry J. Turner, Change the Narrative, How to Build and uh, How to uh, Foster an Anti-Racist Culture in Your School is on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think one of those ways you'll definitely catch me. So I try to be as responsive as I can, um, and supportive, even if I can't provide what you're looking for, but connect you or, or share some resources. So, all right, folks, y'all heard it. Make sure y'all get changed the narrative. Make sure y'all hit up Kathy to learn more about inclusion consulting and her services. She's doing a lot of great work and y'all need to get her into y'all school to help y'all out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. Um, and I appreciate the invitation. All right. Hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another phenomenal episode of I Dane Talk for Educators Live. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, and good night wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.